We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Would you take your Bibles and join me in turning to the Gospel of John this morning. The Gospel of John chapter 19, we're going to be in verses 38 through 42. Enjoyed so much journeying with you through the little Bible books of 2nd and 3rd John. And this Sunday is Palm Sunday, as you know. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday. So this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to be in a two-week series in the Gospel of John. And we're going to look specifically this morning at two characters in the Gospel that I think when we really understand their journey, when we understand what it was like for them when they encountered Christ, especially a Christ who was crucified, how it changed them. In fact, it radically changed them. And so the question for us this morning as we're about to read our text together is simply this. How does a person move from being a coward to being courageous? How do you move from being nominal, on the sidelines, maybe a fan of Christ, but refusing to stand up. How do you move from that to radical discipleship and transformation? How do you go from not caring if people even know that you're a believer to not caring if you died because you're a believer? Stand with me and let's try to discover that together. John chapter 19, we begin in verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in a garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Lord Jesus, teach us today how your death empowers us to move from coward to courageous in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please be seated this morning? Obviously, when we pick up reading this text together, you know the significant event that has already taken place. Jesus has been to the cross, and He has paid the penalty for sin, and He has cried out that cry of derelict, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, as He took on the sins of mankind and paid for them. We know that Jesus finished the mission which he was sent to do because he cried out those famous three words, it is what? Finished. And so now he has died and he is on the middle cross, as you can remember, and he has to be taken off the cross. And now a significant event takes place, one that maybe at times is glossed over as we race through the passion, as we race to the resurrection, but it is a passage that I believe you ignore to your peril. Because it is in this passage 
that we find out not only are prophecies fulfilled, but we find that people come out of the dark and into the light when they encounter what Jesus did for them. When they thank Jesus for the blood that was applied, that all of a sudden the hosannas are able to come out from their mouths and they are able to declare like you declared this morning, all praise unto the Lamb because it was the Lamb that was slain. And it is by His wounds and by His blood that you and I are healed. Two characters that step out are the characters that we just read about together today. A man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea and another man named Nicodemus. Now before we even pick up talking about those characters, I want you to understand that one of the reasons that this passage is so important is because in this passage we see the prophecies are fulfilled. And don't make light of prophecy. If you aren't a student of prophecy, you need to know that one of the greatest reasons to be a Christian, to believe in Christ, to place your faith in Him, is the fulfillment of prophecy. There is no way that it is accident. It is no way that it is luck. It is no way that it's coincidence that Jesus Christ fulfilled all of the prophecies of the Old Testament. Conservative estimates say that Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies. The newest of which came 400 years before he was born. It would be mathematically impossible for him to have be, been able to fulfill just a handful of those prophecies, much less to be able to fulfill hundreds of them and to fulfill them perfectly. But this morning there is a specific prophecy from Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9. It may be that as you're reading through your Bible that that verse has never jumped off the page. It may be one that we haven't really paid a lot of attention to. But specifically, Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9 says this. In talking about the Messiah, it said, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man at his death. His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet, he was with a rich man at his death. Now, that may seem absolutely inconsequential. But just know that centuries before Christ ever came to earth, that a prophecy that specific would be very important because if you are actually questioning whether or not to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then today you are going to see that there's absolutely no choice but to believe that He is who God said He was, that He is who He says He is, and that He is who the Bible says He is because the proof is absolutely in the text that we encountered this morning. Now, we're going to figure out not only, obviously, who those wicked men were when we read the Passion narrative because we know that His grave was assigned with them. What do we know about Jesus? That He was the man on the middle cross, that he was crucified among thieves. Well, we know that when he was crucified, that both of them began to cry out to him and, and they began to mock him. But it was that one of them understood who he was and one of them on the cross repented of his sin. And it was that thief who was told what? Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, there have been those who have said that maybe it was that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross. Maybe he just swooned. Maybe he took a nap. Maybe he went into a light coma. I want you to understand that the crucifixion narrative makes absolutely no doubt that Jesus died on the cross. It was a death not by blood loss. In fact, they made sure that they did not lose their blood. They were nailed through the wrist 
And they were nailed through the feet in specific places so that it did not pierce the arteries so they would not bleed to death. Because if you had bled to death, that would have been an easier death than what the crucifixion actually brought about. To bleed to death would have been quicker and less pain. But what they actually died from was that they suffocated. Because when you're hanging by your own body weight, you have to pick your body weight up to be able to expand your lungs. And when you pick your body weight up to be able to expand your lungs, then you can take a deep breath in. But if the only way that you can get a breath is by pulling on nails that are placed through your hands and nails that are placed through your feet, then you can imagine the excruciating pain every time you had to inhale. So it was after six hours that Jesus spent of compressed hell on that cross that they examined him under the penalty of death. Those Roman guards had to be sure that before he ever came off the cross that he was dead. It's one of the reasons that his side was pierced, which by the way was also a prophecy. And yet while he was there, what we know is that it was very odd that Jesus' body was even allowed to be taken and buried. And one of the reasons was is because when we study Roman history, we know what was normally done with those who were convicted of sedition, which Jesus was convicted of. He was convicted, though unguilty, of sedition, of bringing up an uprising. And so what they would normally do with those that were crucified on crosses, if they had been indicted, if they had been found guilty of sedition, was to leave them on the cross and let their carcasses decay so that as people walked by these crucifixion sites. And by the way, uh, I will tell you that most of us, our picture of, of how the crucifixion was may be a little off. Because you picture it from artwork of being up on a hill, don't you? Way up on a hill, away from everything. That is never how the Romans crucified. The Romans crucified at street level. Why? So that everyone that walked by would see the people that were hanging on the cross. So that when they saw them on the cross, they would absolutely be deterred from whatever criminal activity they were being killed for. So if you were convicted of sedition, they would leave you on the cross and they would just let vultures pick off your flesh so that after days of rotting on a cross, people would be even less inclined to do whatever it was that the person hanging on the cross had actually done. So it is not a small miracle that they were even allowed to take Jesus off the cross, but it is even odder the two people that came and asked for his body. It wasn't the sons of thunder. It wasn't James and John. That might have made sense. It wasn't Peter. Nobody can find him at this point. He's in hiding. It wasn't any of the rest of the disciples. It wasn't even Lazarus, who we sang about this morning. It wasn't Mary and Martha. It was the two people that if you read through the Gospels, you might have least have expected to come out from and ask for his body. A man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea and a man named Nicodemus. You see, friends, prophecies even being fulfilled in them asking for the body and taking it down. Because we sang this morning about him spending in three days he would rise. I don't know if any of you have ever thought through this, but I can remember having a moment uh, when I was really trying to think through my faith and having some doubts and some issues. And I can remember coming and thinking, Jesus was not in the grave for three days. Any of you ever thought about this? If I get put in the ground on Friday afternoon and I come out of the grave on Sunday, how long is that? Two days by my mouth. So 
I began to struggle with how do I reconcile this? And some of you may have struggled with that as well, but you need to know that by the Jewish tradition, any part of a day counted as a whole day. So it's not about three 24-hour periods. It's about part of Friday counted as a day, Saturday counted as a day, and part of Sunday counted as a day. But one of the reasons that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus are rushing is because they have to get this done before the Sabbath. Now, in Israel, what you figure out is that I'd always understood the Sabbath to be simply Saturday, right? But the Sabbath doesn't just start on Saturday morning. The Sabbath starts at sundown on Friday night. So if it starts at sundown on Friday night, they had to rush. They had to get Jesus down because they weren't allowed to work on the Sabbath, which Friday evening would have counted as that. So not only did they have to rush, but even though they may not fully understand the prophecy, as they are rushing to get through, they're also helping not only the prophecy, but what Jesus said in Matthew 12, that I will spend three days in the belly of the earth, just as Jonah was in the fish, I will spend three days in the belly of the earth. So when we talk about prophecies being fulfilled, just in this passage alone, it comes off the page that people are fulfilling prophecies even though they have no idea that they're fulfilling them. He died among thieves and robbers, but he would be buried with a rich man. Who was the rich man? Joseph of Arimathea. I tell you the truth, it is easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to do what? Inherit the kingdom of God. Yet we encounter a rich man. Friends, what I want you to know about salvation is that salvation is impossible for every single one of you. Unless, unless you meet the middleman on the cross. And so for Joseph of Arimathea, he comes and he has sat in secret. We know about him, him because he is mentioned in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four Gospels, because he was a prominent member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. He had not agreed with the Sanhedrin's decision to condemn Jesus. In John 12, 42, it was Joseph of Arimathea that we know that the gospel was pointing to because it says even among the rulers many believed in him but because of the Pharisees they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue. So Joseph even though he's a believer he doesn't want other people to know he's a believer. He doesn't want to stand up in this moment because he doesn't want to get put out of the synagogue and some of you may be thinking why would that be such a big deal? I mean if this church kicked me out I'd just move to another church. I hope it would be a bigger concern to you than just that. But the synagogue was not only the place where you worshipped, it was the center of life for Jewish people. So if you were out of the synagogue, you were out of friendships, you were out of your family, you were out of your business. So everything represented life was through the synagogue. So Joseph, even though he had encountered Jesus and believed in Jesus, he was at the point in his life where I don't want to lose every bit of power I have. I don't want to lose my success. I don't want to lose my money. I don't want to lose my family. I don't want to lose my influence. So I want to believe in Jesus, but I want to be a secret disciple. We have a lot of people that remind me 
of Joseph of Arimathea pre-death of Christ. Because there's a lot of people who, if you ask them in private, are you a believer in Jesus? Oh, absolutely. Do you believe that Jesus died on the cross? Absolutely. Do you believe that in three days He rose again? Oh, absolutely. Have you asked Him to forgive you of your sins? Oh, absolutely. Have you made Him the Lord of your life? And that's where the problem lies. Because it is impossible to be a secret disciple and Jesus also be the Lord of your life. And so where Joseph of Arimathea is encountering this is right now he has seen Jesus on the cross. And even though he had apparently been in this group before, even though he had been cowardly, all of a sudden in this moment exposed to the greatest danger of his life, he goes before Pilate where every member of the Pharisees, every member of Sanhedrin, and the Roman authorities themselves would now know this guy obviously is connected to the middle man on the cross. He's connected to the one they call the king of the Jews, this person that they call Jesus. And at this point in his life, what does Joseph of Arimathea say? I don't care anymore. I don't care anymore. There's no more secrets. I saw what they did. I saw how the cat of nine tails was taken to his back and the 49 lashes that exposed even his organs. I saw the crown of thorns jammed upon his brow and the blood that covered his eyes and his face. I saw how he was stripped naked and they cast lots for him. I saw how on the cross that he cried, forgive them, Father, for I know not what they do. I saw as he excruciatingly pulled himself up and took breaths. I've seen the miracles. I've seen how he lived his life and I just saw what he did for me and if you need to kill me because I want to give him a proper burial then I guess kill me too because I can't anymore stay in the shadows I can't stay in the dark he loved me and I love him so let the chips fall may that where they may I should have done more for him in life but I'm going to do something for him in death now give me his body because I want to bury him if you really encounter Jesus Messiah if you understand who he is then it calls you out you can't hang out in the halls of high school and act like you don't know him. You can't go to work and act like you don't know him. You can't go to a college campus and act like you don't know him. And what we encounter in Joseph is something that's called out to all of us. Because he now does the only thing that he knows to do is the greatest thing he can do. I think this is incredibly beautiful. Probably in that moment, he was absolutely convicted of the sin in his life and how he had refused to take more of a stand. And maybe it was just took just a few moments, and maybe he thought, I don't know what to do, but i got to do something great. And the best thing that he could come up with was, I'll give him my tomb. At least he can be buried where I was supposed to be buried. I'll let him take my place in my tomb, a new tomb, which by the way, that fulfilled prophecy as well, that he would be buried in a new tomb. And so Joseph of Arimathea takes him and goes to prepare him. He was the rich man that was prophesied about and he placed him in his own tomb. But what Joseph didn't fully understand, and he didn't quite get it yet, but we can't give Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus too hard of a time because even the disciples themselves, we're going to see this next week, even they didn't fully get it. What Joseph didn't know is that Jesus really didn't want to have the tomb. 
Jesus just wanted to borrow it. When I had the privilege last month to be in Israel, one of the last days that we were there, we went by this place that is called the place of the skull for Golgotha. You can actually see exactly where it was that they crucified Jesus. And one of the reasons they know that is because the reason they called it the place of the skull is there is literally a place in the rock where the, the natural formations of the rock look like a skull. You can still look at it and see. And Jesus would have been crucified right in front of it because it was just outside the city gates. You can see Jerusalem right here. They would have taken the bodies outside. They would have put the crosses right there. So everybody walking past the city or into the city would have walked right by this place of the skull, this place called Golgotha, what we know as Calvary. And it wouldn't have been like a place that maybe we have envisioned before where it was a beautiful little grassy, sunny side knoll hill. No, it was a disgusting trash heap just outside the city in the place in front of a skull. And they would have taken Jesus and they would have killed him. And then Jesus' body would have been laid there on the cross until Joseph of Arimathea came and they took him down. And after having taken him down and after having prepared the body, he took him to his own tomb and he laid it. Now there's debate about exactly what tomb that was, but many think it was what is known as the garden tomb. And while we were in Israel, we went from the place of the skull, the place of Golgotha, and we went to the garden tomb. There's thousands of people come all of the time. It's one of the most toured sites in all of Israel. And so you have to go through, and it, it, honestly, it's, it's a huge tourist attraction. But as you walk in, you have to form in line, and you wait in line and wait in line and wait in line, and they don't allow more than three to four people at a time to duck their head and go into what is the garden tomb. Now, Positively, whether or not that is the exact tomb that Jesus was laid in, I can't say that definitively, but it is exactly like the kind of tomb that Jesus was in. And I got, I, I had to laugh to myself because I'm standing in line and I'm waiting to go in this tomb and, I, and, and Brooke and I are, are, are waiting on the line and people are going in and, and nobody was spending more than just a, a few moments few in, in there and they'd walk out. And everybody that walked out, all I could think to myself was, out of the thousands and thousands of people that have walked into that tomb, I can tell you this, not one of them has found him. He's not there. He wasn't there, but Friday evening, Friday night, Saturday, and Saturday night, and then he didn't need the tomb anymore. But one of the great things about Joseph of Arimathea is that what we understand is that he let, let Jesus borrow his tomb. When you got saved, you let Jesus have your tomb. Follow me on this. When we got saved, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. When we got redeemed, we got born again. Now, all of a sudden, what you know about your life and your soul is that when we come to your funeral, whether that's next week, next month, next year, 20 years from now, 100 years from now, whenever that is, if you are a redeemed believer and the person preaching your funeral has a reason to believe that you're saved, they're going to say something like this. Maybe not exactly, but they're going to say something like this. Here lies the body of such and such. But such and such is not here. Why? All we are looking at is their earthly tent. 
This is just their body. They are not here. And we're going to take you, and whether or not you're cremated or whether or not you're put in a tomb or whether or not you're put in a vault, none of that matters. And here's why it doesn't matter. Because you're not going to be there. Why? Because Jesus took your tomb. He was laid in that tomb and defeated sin and death so you wouldn't have to stay in yours. He not only took Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, he took mine. And if you're saved, he took yours as well. But Joseph wasn't the only one who was there that day. There was also another person. And you see this name Nicodemus that arises. This Nicodemus is the same one who had come to Jesus by night in John chapter 3. And in John chapter 7, he's the same Nicodemus that asked the other Pharisees and chief priests, does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him find out what he is doing? The Holy Spirit is already moved in Nicodemus just like it had moved in Joseph of Arimathea before this night. But Nicodemus now, before he would only come to Jesus at night because he didn't want to see anybody to see him talking to Jesus. Now Nicodemus, for the world to see, stands up and he says, I want to take his body. And I think it's, if you do just a little bit of study, what you find out is that Nicodemus, a lot like Joseph of Arimathea, tries to figure out what can I do now. And do you see the amount of spices that it says that he brought? 75 pounds? That is enough spices what they would normally use to anoint a king. That's how much spices were used. Now understand they didn't embalm people. I'm not going to totally gross everybody out here with the embalming process. But if you know anything about embalming, it's... It's something. They didn't have embalming processes then, so they didn't do what we do now. They would take the body and they would take these linen strips and you would soak them in these oils and colognes and fragrances. And then you would tightly wrap the body in these soaked linen strips to try to disguise the stench of death. So that after a day or two, when the body began decomposing and the rotting corpse and the rotting flesh would begin to smell, these linen strips filled with myrrh and all these other fragrances would disguise that. But it may be that some of you have already had this thought this morning because you remembered. Maybe you thought, myrrh, myrrh, myrrh. Where, where have I heard that before? Where, where did I see myrrh mentioned? Do you remember? Anybody remember where we, where we saw myrrh mentioned? And the wise men from the east came and they were bearing what? Gold and frankincense and myrrh. Frankincense, it's, it's gold. That's, what it, that's absolutely what you anoint a king with. Frankincense, when we get to the word frankincense, we're thinking about exactly what that would be is preparial, not only preparing for death, but in myrrh, we are, it is a burial spice, a very odd thing to give a baby. I think. But he was born to die. And he was born to die for you. And Nicodemus doing all he could do now was, I'm not going to be in the shadows any longer. I'm not going to be a secret believer any longer. It was an empowerment in Christ's death. It is why we sing about a love so amazing, a love so divine, that it demands my soul, my life, my all. No shame, no regrets. No backing down. No secret disciples where we move from coward to courageous. It's the, the Bible's full of examples of that. Noah got asked to build a boat when it hadn't even rained. 
Abraham was asked to leave Ur of the Chaldees to be a great nation when he had no children. Moses was called to lead Israel when he had a speech impediment. Joshua and Caleb gave a minority report when everybody else said, don't go in the land. They said, let's take it. Ruth dared to stay with her mother-in-law when she had every excuse to leave. Esther dared to speak to the king when she said, only for such a time as this, but if I die, I die. David was willing to face Goliath. Daniel, when threatened with being thrown into the lion, Den showed courage. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those Jewish boys, were hailed into the fiery furnace and they encountered the fourth man. Stephen proclaimed the gospel in the face of death, and Paul and Silas dared to be able to sing in the midst of a prison sentence. Why? Because when you encounter the crucified Christ, when you encounter the God of the gospel, all of a sudden you realize if he's not going to be ashamed of me, then I cannot be ashamed of him. So we step forward and we come out, Paul. Sunday calls us to come out. Easter calls us to come out to where we look out at the world and we say Jesus is my God. Let the chips fall where they may in a world of liberalism, in a world of secularism, in a world of humanism, in a world where everything would tell you that you aren't allowed to exclusively believe in the gospel. I will tell you, friends, I want to be counted with Christ. I want to be held with Christ. I want my name to be in the book of life and I want the world to know that if you or anybody else refuse to follow him then get out of the way because I'm not going to be a secret disciple. I want to live in the light of life. I want to be proud of my Jesus and I want my Jesus to be proud of me and I'm asking you to come out of the darkness. I'm asking you to stop being a secret disciple. I'm asking you to allow the Holy Spirit to do in your life what he did in Joseph of Arimathea's life and what he did in Nicodemus's life. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's not about not having weaknesses or problems, but it's about admitting them and moving forward. But courage is like a muscle. You have to work it if you want it to grow. And what you will find is that if you do, if you do, courage is contagious. It will catch to other people that are around you. So you don't have to let what you have done or what you haven't done in the past Keep you from what you should do now and what you should do in the future. There is no place for secret disciples. The power of the cross began to operate in the lives of Joseph of Arimathea and the life of Nicodemus. The question is, has the power of the cross begun to operate in yours? What happens when we survey the wondrous cross on which the king of glory died it calls you out it moves you from cowardice to courage and empowers you thanks for listening to fbc summit we are leading everyday people to love jesus and make him known for more information visit our website fbcsummit.org